had this this idea already and we started to look into it and we already knew that bacteria could detect things that was pretty pretty well established but i think what we really figured out was this piece of getting them to produce these electrical signals and that was a really different approach that nobody else had really been taking in the space and it allowed us to build what we hoped would be sensors that could be used in a whole bunch of different stuff like tailings ponds because often people use bacteria they'll get them to to glow a certain color when something's present you may have heard of like plants that glow as you know emit a certain color if something's there but when you're dealing with tailings ponds water and things that have sediment and all sorts of stuff in them that doesn't really work and so we had this idea that we could use this different way of, of approaching it and that was really what you know at Initially, it was just an idea. We had no idea it would work, but that was kind of what led us down the pathway of starting to experiment with it. That's this episode's guest, Emily Hicks, describing the seminal moment when she and her colleagues determined that a genetically engineered bacteria could generate electrical signals in the presence of certain chemicals. In so doing, they had discovered the technical means for dramatically lowering the cost and complexity of measuring impurities in water. It's a technology perfectly in sync with our times. Emily is president and co-founder of FredSense, a Calgary, Canada-based biotechnology startup company which is commercializing the discovery and bringing it to market. It's a remarkable story, and you'll hear more about that in a moment. This episode of the show is also unique in that it was recorded live at the Inventures Conference in Calgary in June of 2018. I'm Terence Yannon, and this is the Work Not Work Show, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Thanks, Karen, and good morning, folks. As Karen mentioned, my name is Terence Gannon, and I am the host of the Work Not Work Show, which is dedicated to telling the stories of those like my guest today who have turned their passion in life into their profession. It's my great honor to welcome Emily Hicks, president and co-founder of FredSense, to this, our first live edition of the show. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Really appreciate it. FRED stands for Field Ready Electrochemical Detector, which is the product that FredSense has invented, developed, and brought to market. It's used to detect trace amounts of chemicals in water using a groundbreaking new approach that Emily will be telling you about in a moment. By way of introduction, Emily Hicks is a graduate from the University of Calgary with a BSc in Biomedical Sciences. During her time there, she led teams to the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition at MIT for four consecutive years. 2013, her team won the Best Entrepreneurial Project, amongst numerous other awards. Her studies in biomedical sciences at the U of C eventually led her to work on the technology on which FredSense is based. She is a named inventor in the 2013 patent related to that work. Amongst her wide variety of accolades, Emily has been selected as a Kairos Society Fellow, one of the top 30 under 30 in sustainability in Canada, a National Nickel Award winner in 2014, the Parley McClaws Females in Energy Scholarship, just to name a few, it sounds to me as though Emily has forgotten more than I will ever know. If I can continue, in 2014, she co-founded FredSense with David Lloyd, and she currently leads the company's research and development efforts. Obviously, that's an incredibly impressive resume, Emily, but it all leads me to one question. What's in our water? It's a good question, <laughs> and that's essentially what kind of the question that led us to start 
founding FredSense. And so as you mentioned, I was a student at the University of Calgary and I was competing in this genetic engineering competition. And we started to think about how we could use bacteria to be able to measure things in water. And initially we thought, well, let's use bacteria to clean things up in water. And then as we started to look into it, realized that that was really cool, but we would also need ways to actually see what that process looked like. And the more we looked into it, the more we realized that this whole idea of measuring things in your water is actually quite challenging. And that in most industries, be it oil and gas, or be it agriculture, or you know even cities, their drinking water, the way that they figure out what's in it is they send it off to an analytical lab, they wait two weeks maybe, and then they get the data back. And then they make some kind of decision based on what the data looked like two weeks ago that may or may not be what things look like today. And so we started to think about this when we were students competing in this competition, and we thought, well, what if we use bacteria to be able to measure these things? And bacteria are cheap, and they're easy to produce, and they can detect a whole host of different contaminants because they've evolved to degrade these or interact with these in some way. And so that was really what led us to develop this idea of FRED, this field-ready electrochemical detector that's essentially a bacteria that's genetically modified to detect contaminants in water and then produce electrical signals. And so we competed in this competition with this technology, it was really cool, we won a whole bunch of awards, and at the end of it, kind of being really naive, students thought, well, why don't we just start a business? That sounds easy. And <laughs> so we decided to, to found FredSense and uh, had absolutely no idea what we were doing or what we were getting ourselves into. We mm -hmm. had you know, visions of you know, fancy glass-walled offices and people sit around and sip coffee, and I'm not really sure what else, but it sounded pretty cool. So, mm -hmm. so that's how we, we started FredSense and kind of has carried forward this idea that you know, we can figure out, we can use biology to figure something out about water and to be able to solve this, this big problem that we have. And as we kind of grew the technology, we realized that you know, this was a problem that affected so many different people and businesses and industries. And this seemed like a pretty interesting problem to start tackling. Was there a moment that you can recall where you thought, you know what, I think we can make a bacteria to do this? There was, you know, I remember some of the early meetings when we kind of started to think about what we wanted to do. And right. so I had been competing in this competition for a couple of years and I worked on some very different kind of projects. Mm -hmm. And so the reason a lot of this came together was we had some funding from at the time the Oil Sands Leadership Initiative. And so they said, you know, we'll fund your project if you can figure out how to use bacteria to do something in tailings ponds. Right. And so we kind of had this, this idea already and we started to look into it. And we already knew that bacteria could detect things. That was pretty pretty well established, but I think what we really figured out was this piece of getting them to produce these electrical signals, and that was a really different approach that nobody else had really been taking in the space, and it allowed us to build what we hoped would be sensors that could be used in a whole bunch of different stuff like tailings ponds, because right. often people use bacteria, they'll get them to, to glow a certain color when something's present. You may have heard of like plants that glow, a, you know, emit a certain color if something's there, right. but when you're dealing with tailings ponds, water, and things that have sediment and all sorts of stuff, in them that doesn't really work right and so we had this idea that we could use this different way of, of approaching it and that was really what you know at, at initially it was just an idea we had no idea it would work mm -hmm. but that was kind of what led us down the pathway of starting to experiment with it the actual bacteria is that the basis of the patent or is it the combination of the bacteria and the electrical device exactly yeah. it's it's the combination of the bacteria and using that to drive this electrical approach so integrating these two things together and nobody had done that work up until that point 
not in the way that we do it. So there were some academics that had done, you know, kind of fringe work on that side using some of this stuff, but nobody had really done it in the way that we envisioned it and definitely never in any kind of product or application at all. Right. And later in the interview, we're going to actually talk a little bit more about where Friendsets is today. But before we do that, Emily, can you go back as far as you can remember? The, the essence of this podcast is that we talk about life arcs where you started, where you are, where you're going. And I'm intrigued with the seminal moment when you were a child that said, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. That, that's a great question, because I had, you know, I kind of talk about Fred Sense that I kind of fell into it by accident, mm -hmm. and it wasn't something that I ever thought as a kid I would be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I never even opened a lemonade stand as a child. <laughs> this was not something I thought about. When I went to university, right. I looked at the business programs and thought, wow, I don't know why anyone would do that. You wear suits and you look fancy. I don't know what else that entails. And when I thought about entrepreneurship, I really thought that was something like opening a Tim Hortons franchise or something like that. Right. I never thought that entrepreneurship was something interesting or something that you could use technology for or anything like that. Right. And so for me, it was really, you know, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I went into the Bachelor of Health Sciences program because my best friend did that. So it seemed like that was a good that seems good like a good approach, reason good yeah. reason. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, you know, through that program, I spent my first year, didn't really like it, wasn't really sure what it, you know, what this was useful for. Right. And, you know, and I had this, I was in a, a policy focused program at the time. And I had this mentor that was big in policy in the health region in Calgary. And I used to meet with her and I slowly started to realize that everything that she was really excited about I was not at all excited about, oh. and I realized that this wasn't, I wasn't in the right place. Right. And so that summer I found this, this posting on the wall that was for this iGEM team. And I went to the initial meeting and they talked about this idea that you could genetically modify bacteria. And I didn't really understand any of it, but it sounded really cool. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that's something that I need to be a part of. Right. And so I ended up getting onto the iGEM team and just fell in love with this idea of trying to use biology to solve a problem and this idea of kind of engineering it and using it to to build something that could do something because i found in all my courses i was learning all this you know hypothetical stuff all these things that just seemed really distant and not useful but this was you know building something new that no one had done before right. and i really fell in love with this idea of working as a team because everywhere else in your undergraduate degree you're kind of you're judged as a person, as a, you know, you write the exam, you do the project, you do this, and it's all by yourself, right? right? And I, when you're working on this iGEM team, I was working with students and all sorts of different faculties and all really working together and trying to build something. And I realized how much I really, really love that. Right. And I had come from kind of a theater background where I'd done a lot of theater and that felt very similar where you're all kind of working together for, for this common goal oh, and okay. all doing this thing together. And so that was really what led me to you know, this, this love for this team thing, I realized that that's what I wanted to do. And so I started to think, well, you know, I can't do an undergraduate student research competition for the rest of my life. How right. do I turn right. that into a job? Right. And so when we kind of had this idea, you know, let's do a startup, we had no idea what a startup meant, but it seemed like this was, you know, continuing on this, right. this research that we were doing and this working together and trying to build something. And those are really the aspects of it that, that I was drawn to. And I, you know, I realized slowly as, as the process went along that being in a startup was really very similar to what I've been doing all along on this iGEM team. Now the iGEM competition, I mean, that's not some little local thing. That was actually at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Is that yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. And what kind of audience did you have for that? Yeah, there's about, I think, 300 or 400 student teams from all around the world. So every, every major university has a team. Right. Um, and we were the Calgary team. And so when I first started into it, 
I just loved the competition. You know, the first time I went, I was just blown away by what these other teams were doing. And as a first year undergraduate student, I kind of realized, wow, like there's so much more out there. Right. This is so cool. And so spent a couple of years really trying to build up the OC team and we became quite a quite a competitor. We were we came second in North America or second in the Americas for several years in a row, wow. which was pretty exciting considering, you know, coming from UFC versus when you look right. at, you know, the Harvard team and the Yale team and the MIT team, they don't fundraise, they don't, you know, they right. don't have to deal with that kind of stuff. They no. just have all the resources. Right. But have all the money in the world basically. They do. To start yes, with. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, okay. You know, but we had this Calgary team and we were kind of this underdog and that was really fun trying Excellent. to figure out how we could how we could compete too on the same field. Now you let it slip that you had some experience in the theater. Did you harbor any desire to be a professional thespian, an actor? At one point, yes. When I went into university, I was really, didn't know what I wanted to do because right. I was actively involved in the theater community, had done a bunch of productions in Calgary. Right. I was a competitive Highland dancer and played the oboe in several uh, wind ensembles. And, smoke, but I was I also the research, really good anyway, at math. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> right. I had no idea how these things kind of you know, went together, right. and I, I thought about going into theater, and my parents were very, very against that. Oh, okay. And, uh, but I, I also, I really love science, and I really loved biology, and I had this really great biology teacher in high school that really encouraged me to go into biology, and right. so I kind of, I, I didn't know what to do, but I ended up picking, picking science, because it just seemed like it was, I, I felt like I could maybe do theater on the side, but I wasn't sure how you do biology on the side. But you can't do the, you can't do theater on the side, right? I mean, you still can, right? Exactly. And and I, I suspect that those acting skills actually come in quite handy when dealing with investors. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Please tell us how you met David Lloyd, the, your co-founder of Fred Sense, and uh, how did things evolve into you, the two of you, wanting to co-found Fred Sense? So I met David, he was at the University of Edmonton, just finishing up his undergraduate degree when I was in my first year. And he led the University of Alberta's iGEM team. They were also a really good Canadian team. And so there was the U of C and the U of A, and we were very competitive. And that's how I met David was he was, oh, he was, on, on, a, he was on a He was leading team. the other team, and oh. we were trying to beat them. Oh, okay. And right. uh, got to know him pretty well through the process and realized he was, he was quite smart and uh, was a little intimidating. And so when he finished his undergrad degree, he was thinking about doing a master's, and he decided to come to the University of Calgary. I called him up and said, you know, you got to come join the Calgary team because I thought this would be, right. you know, we're recruiting talent from sure. Alberta. This is great. That's right. And so I convinced Poach him to come. it from the competition. Exactly. So Perfect. I convinced him to come and join <laughs> okay. the, the Calgary team <laughs> and we worked together for a number of years. I realized that David had this kind of crazy competitive streak just like I did and this right. little bit of, you know, being kind of insane and wanting to be in the lab at four in the morning just because wanted to get this done Beautiful. and I didn't see that in a lot of my other friends but I saw this in David so right. I thought you know I got to latch onto this oh excellent so personal chemistry as much as anything else mm -hmm. by the sounds of it you attended the University of Calgary as we've talked about how did you come to choose the University of Calgary and did it prepare you well for the work you're doing now kind of okay uh, I did it I had a degree in biomedical sciences and I realized in going through the process that biomedical sciences, it's essentially a, a pre-med degree. Right. Out of everyone that I graduated with, probably 98% of them are in medical school. Well, right. they're doctors now, essentially. Yeah, right. Right. Um, and that was what I thought I wanted to be at one point because I'd seen it on TV and it looked nice on TV. So I thought that seemed like a good career path. Right. Um, but the, you know, the good thing about the degree program, even though it had this medical focus, was that it had this research focus. Right. And I didn't realize it at the time, but instead of doing just a regular biology degree, we had this focus on looking into the literature 
asking questions, trying to figure out how you could answer those questions, presenting research. We did all sorts of different projects that were self-directed where we had to just pick a, pick a professor at the university and convince them that we wanted to do a project with them and we had to propose it and figure out the methods and write it up and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I thought that was like, everyone does that in right. science degrees, but that's actually not the case. You can go through a science degree just memorizing a whole lot of facts and learning a lot of things that you'll probably forget really fast. Right. And, and that's it. And yeah. so I, this experience that I had with research and learning to ask questions and learning how to, how to read the literature critically and how to figure stuff out, I realized after the fact was super useful for me because I already kind of knew how to write a grant and I knew how to formulate a project plan and I knew how to do some of these things that, that were really useful when I started leading all of the research and development at FredSense. And I think you know, that degree program really did prepare me for that. Now, you were a little hesitant, though. Well, uh, you, <laughs> said, what's the, you said kind of. So what, what might the university have done better? Well, I think there's just so many things that it, it didn't prepare me for in terms of, you know, managing people and, you know, managing conflict and dealing with investors and different stakeholders and so many things. But, you know, I don't know, I don't know how you learn to be an entrepreneur going to school. Right. I think a lot of that stuff just can't really be taught in a classroom environment. It's things that you have to learn for yourself and you have to learn by making a whole lot of mistakes and figuring out your way through them. And was there a program to catch you after you finished your undergrad degree that supplied some of those things? Not really, no. to be honest. We learned a lot of the stuff on our own. One of the things we did was really trying to find mentors and people in the community that would, would help us. And you know, we talked to so many people in the early days. You know, we want to start this company. This is our idea. This is what we're doing. What, what can you tell us? You know, right. what's, what's a patent? What's a, what do we, how do you incorporate a business? How do you do all these things? Right. And we used a lot, of that, a lot of that information that we got from people. And we were very fortunate to stumble upon some really great mentors in the early days that were willing to give us free advice and sit down with us and help us right. map things out. But you know, none of us learned it in any formal setting. And we took a lot of grief for that in the early days because a lot of people would look at us and say, well, you don't have an, no one has an MBA on your team. You can't start a company with that. Oh, I see. So discounted you because you didn't have exactly. a formal qualification. Exactly. I mean, yeah. looking, looking back on that experience now, I mean, do you have a sense that if those resources had been available to you, you would have taken advantage of them? Or is there a real benefit to you just being an entrepreneur and, and learning it as you go? I think we really just had to learn it as we went. You know, we were very fortunate. We did do a bunch of accelerator programs where the company would go to some kind of business boot camp type of thing. And so that helped us learn the terminology, learn the language, learn you know, how you speak to investors, what kind of words you need to use, all that kind of thing. But I think the actual meat of it, figuring out how to, how to build a product, how to build a team, how to scale it, all that kind of thing, I'm not really sure we could have learned that in a course. Let's talk about FredSense today. Uh, have you achieved a certain critical mass where you feel the future of the business is assured? No. Oh. So <laughs> Not at so all. Tell, so tell, tell us about that journey. I think the, the weird thing about a startup is it just goes through all these different phases and every phase is a little bit different and has different challenges and different problems. And when I initially started the company, I always you know, we're building this product and we're trying to get these engineered bacteria to do what we want them to do and trying to get it to work all the time. And it's very challenging and trying to integrate hardware and software and genetically modified bacteria is not that easy as we learned. Mm -hmm. And I always had it in my head, you know, as soon as we build a product and sell it to one person, we're done, we're successful. That's, that's all there is. It's easy after that. Right. 
And then I remember this moment that I sat in this talk by this entrepreneur explaining, you know, the first hundred sales is easy. It's, it's how you get to the thousand. And I started to realize, oh, crap, it's not over. I need to get past over. one first, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. it's not over after one. <laughs> right. Gosh, you know, I right. thought that that was the hard part. And right. it actually, it wasn't the hard part, but it, it wasn't the only hard part. It's just now there's different hard parts. And so, sure. you know, around every corner, it feels like you, you figure that part out. And now there's something new that you need to, that you need to figure out and need to get over. And so I think the the future isn't isn't for sure, but we've definitely de-risked a lot of it, which makes you feel better and gives you a little bit of confidence that, you know, we overcame all these really hard things. We can keep overcoming these hard things. Before hearing more from Emily, I want to pause for a moment and for a couple of reasons, talk a little bit about one of our fellow members of the Alberta Podcast Network, For those who enjoy longer format interviews, and in particular those which focus on the life arc of their guests, you will like, uh, no, actually, I think you're going to love the creative block hosted by Kyle Marshall. In some ways, similar to the Work Not Work show, Kyle interviews artists and entrepreneurs about where they came from, what they're doing now, and where they want to go. In episode 18, for example, Kyle talks with Ben Burney, whose life journey has included being a lawyer, a Broadway composer, and now an author. It seems like any one of those is more than a career, but Ben and Kyle somehow make it all make sense, and I think you're really going to enjoy listening to them. Turns out, like Ben Burney, Kyle is a man of many talents. Not only does he host the Creative Block, he also owns Media Lab YYC, a Calgary-based podcasting and video editing studio. You don't have to look very far to find an example of Kyle's work. He was responsible for the mobile recording setup at the Inventors Conference and deserves all the credit for capturing the crystal clear audio for this episode. Thanks again, Kyle, and it was a total pleasure working with you, and I hope we can do it again in the future. Now back to our interview with Emily Hicks, president and co-founder of FredSense, recorded live at the Inventors Conference in Calgary in the summer of 2018. talking a little bit before we started about the fact that you're now in your fourth office or your fourth lab. Yes. So like just quickly step us through kind of the four those four stages and how you've grown from one to the next. The first one was in your mom's kitchen, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. We started. So one of the things shortly after we decided we were going to be entrepreneurs and we, you know, had our first business meeting in my friend's kitchen and decided, yeah, we're going to be entrepreneurs. Was there a napkin that you wrote on? Yeah, yeah, there was some kind of some paper and napkins, and we kind of tried to figure out, like, what do you do to start a company? I'm not sure. Right, napkins to start with, right? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. and so we realized, you know, we had had this idea that we would, we'd have to set up a lab because that was what we needed to do to get the research done. And so we started pricing all of that out and figuring out, you know, how do you, what do you need to start a lab? And we came back with this figure of about $500,000 was what we'd need to get this lab started. I had I you didn't have the 500 grand no we didn't oh, and okay, right. uh, none of our parents <laughs> had that money and nobody nobody's afraid to give it to you no you right. know when you're kind of six undergraduate students with this biotech idea on the back of a napkin nobody is kind of rushing to just give you money no. necessarily right and so we realized we'd have to be a lot more creative about how we would do this we realized that we couldn't probably buy this all this fancy you know equipment and have this really nice state-of-the-art lab right. we'd have to do it cheaper and so I realized that you could buy most of this lab equipment off of eBay because people sell secondhand lab equipment 
on eBay. No kidding. Yeah. So we started buying it all and we bought all this stuff and shipped it all to my mom's house. And I didn't tell her that that's what was happening, but the, these boxes started showing up and she was convinced that she'd be on some kind of wanted list with the you know, U.S. government or something. Because right, right. all these, you know, because when you buy things, you know, like little scales and stuff like that, like jewelry right. scales, yeah. they start asking that's you right. if you also want little baggies and money belts and stuff like right, that. Right, right. So we, we had and all the this white stuff. powder begins to show up and that's exactly. a problem. Yeah, yeah, okay. So all this stuff kind of showed up and we started testing it out in our kitchen and she was not super happy about it. And so we had to figure out a new location. And so we found this little little lab by the university in this research transition facility and it was 141 square feet, which right. we thought was perfect because we paid by the square foot. Right. This, was a, this was a good deal. And we moved in and it was, a, it was a closet. And so we kept that lab for a fair bit of time. But once we had three employees and there was no longer, like you could kind of fit two people, right. but you couldn't, like three was just not possible. Right. And so we had to move. And so at that point we moved into a old car repair shop in the Northeast that we decided we could retrofit as a lab. Right. And we did, and it worked quite well for a couple years. We were there for about two years, but what we didn't think about was we thought, well, Calgary, no one needs air conditioning. It's fine. Right. Didn't think about giant warehouse that has virtually no insulation and that the back would get above 40 degrees sure. in the summer. And that's not great for bacteria. They don't right. grow at that temperature. And it's also not great for people right. who you're expecting to wear lab coats and do science. Right. So that was kind of why we eventually, when, when the team, we did, we grew out of that space. We had six people sharing one desk and it just wasn't working anymore. Right. So we moved into the space that we're, we're in now. And that's 6,000 square feet. Yes. Wow. Yes. So, so and you have a total of how many employees? We now? have 12. 12 employees, mm -hmm. and it's including you. Yes. Right. There's a question that, that I personally have uh, wanted to ask as part of this interview is, when you talk about bio something or testing something to investors, do they immediately jump to the now infamous story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos? And for those in our audience who aren't familiar with it, Theranos developed a technology for testing minute blood samples uh, using a proprietary kind of secret gadget and it turned out to be kind of a fraud. Given the entirely superficial similarities with your respective stories, has that had any impact on your business? Do you get asked that question? Are you the next Theranos? All the time. <laughs> no yeah, kidding. I think investors kind of see, okay, young female founder diagnostic, and that immediately that's where their, their brain goes. And so right. we get all sorts of questions. How will you not be the next Theranos? What's different between you and Theranos? How are you not going to be like Elizabeth Holmes? And it's, it's kind of annoying, actually, because I feel like there's so many, you know, other examples of people doing similar stuff. It's, that's that's all, all people can think about. But right. those are those are the woes. And, the, you know, these are the things that we, you know, think about when we're trying to develop some of these hard science projects. And, you know, in a sense, I feel for them because, you know, that technology, they probably believed it was going to work. But the thing with science sometimes is it, it just doesn't. And I think you have to be so careful, though, about how you how you portray what you're doing to people that don't understand it and how you make sure that you're not going too far with the claims that you're making and that you're being honest about where you're at, which is always difficult because whenever, you know, investors ask you where you're at, you want to tell them that you're way you're way farther than you are. And of course, it works all the time. Right. Everything's great. But you have to try to be realistic about what's actually going on and where the risks really are. Again, we spoke a little bit about this before. Is when I read about that story and I saw the, the story evolve, I wanted it to be true. And, Absolutely. And, and I was going to say is that when I look at what you folks are doing at FredSense, I sort of feel the same thing. I want all of this to be true. I want it to be an exciting story for, for yourselves and for Calgary. Getting swept up in that is probably one of the uh, occupational hazards. Let's just talk a little bit about the investment climate in Calgary and the support that you've received. How have you found the investment in climate in Alberta? Given the protracted downturn in the oil and gas business, so 
not a lot of investment money going into oil and gas. Has it been a benefit to you to have the oil and gas industry soft at the moment while you're trying to raise money? Yes and no. I, th I think it's good in a sense that people are starting to think more about other industries and thinking more about diversification and thinking more about different technologies, I think, which is really positive for us and definitely it seems like a more, people thought I was really crazy for trying to do this biotech thing in the start, but now I think they're starting to realize, you know, maybe it's good to be looking at some of these other technologies, and especially in Alberta where we have a lot of life science graduates, a lot of talent in the area, it makes sense to be developing this kind of technology. In terms of investment, the climate's tough in Alberta and in Canada. Generally, we're still very, very risk adverse compared to the US, mm -hmm. and especially us being a young founding group, first time entrepreneurs, not a lot of people really looking to give us money. We really, really struggled to try to raise any you know, amount of money. We did close a seed round last year, but that was, it, it was difficult to find Lo Locally people. in Calgary? Yeah, yeah. Lo locally here. Uh, yeah. Well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. Some of them are local, but we also have a fair bit from the States. Okay. I understand that at some point in your development, you spent some time in Silicon Valley at Singularity yes. University. Uh, what intrigues me about that is, first of all, what was that experience like? And second of all, did you have a chance to sort of compare life as an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley as opposed to life as an entrepreneur here in, in Alberta? Yes. So Silicon Valley, we, we went down in the fall of 2015. So this was in our journey of you know starting up. We had gotten some government grants, we had set up this lab, we had a couple employees, things were going kind of well, but then we were running out of money, which is really common theme in the mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. And we essentially got this cold email from this group called Singularity University that we had heard about. They try to promote exponential technologies to solve really big global challenges, and they wanted us to apply for their accelerator. And we thought, okay, sure, why not? And so we did, and we ended up getting accepted, which we weren't really expecting, because they had you know hundreds and hundreds of applications, and they picked seven. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up getting accepted, so we said, why not? We'll do this. And so we moved down to uh, Silicon Valley. We lived at the NASA Research Park, uh, which is pretty cool because we got to live at NASA and you had to go through the security and stuff, and it was it was pretty cool. Right. Re actually, really run down and dilapidated, but right, <laughs> You're right, 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 right. You know, not a lot of funding there, That's but right. we were at NASA, so should have quit while you were ahead, Emily. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, so we lived there. Got to you know, we're part of Singularity's accelerator where they brought in all sorts of people that could you know mentor people to help us. We had pitch coaching, you know, tried to meet customers, all sorts of stuff. Um, and it was just a tremendous opportunity. And definitely being an entrepreneur down there is, is very different um, in some in, ways. In what way? It's, you know, a, everyone has a startup. Everywhere you go, you know, you go to a party, it's like, what's your startup? What's your startup? And okay. I do this. And I, or they work at Google. Like, that's the only, uh, right. th that's the only option. <laughs> okay. you know? So it's, it makes it a little bit difficult to be, to be unique and to be interesting because you're just one of a million other people that are trying to do the same thing. Right. But on the flip side, people are a lot more there's just this this passion and this energy down there and everyone that you meet down there loves their job, loves what they're doing, is passionate about it. Whereas when I'm back here in Calgary, most of my friends, when I get together with them, work sucks, my boss sucks, mm. this sucks. And that's, that's you know, it's just a very different, I find a very different energy, but it's definitely, it's it's crazy. Things are 24 seven down there. You're expected to just work, you know, 20 hours a day. Every gym is 24 seven because that's, of course people work out at four in the morning. That's, right. that's how life works. And it's just kind of this mental, uh, grind right so it's a bit it's a bit overwhelming you didn't feel at the end of that term that you wanted to stay oh no we definitely wanted to stay oh, absolutely okay. i i would have stayed in a heartbeat our challenge was you know at that point we had we'd had six founders and so we had four founders that had stayed back at 
at home, mostly because they were all still in their PhDs and couldn't pick up and leave. Right. And we also had three employees at this stage. And so we have this team back home, we had this lab set up and to start a biotech in the Valley is just, it's so expensive. You know, you have to pay people so much because it, it costs so much. And, you know, we kind of looked at our friends that had, they stuck around in the Valley afterwards and they were both paying about $1,400 US to rent a bunk bed in a shared room. And we thought, wow, that, you know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to actually, you know, rent an office, rent a lab, get all the equipment that we need? It just, it seemed, it just seemed like so much money. And our challenge was, you know, we weren't at a place where we really could just start selling and we had the product developed. We knew we had a lot more R&D ahead of us and we had a lot more figuring stuff out. And so it just seemed like, you know, we're going to be burning money so fast there. Why don't we go back to Canada where we can at least have a little bit more time to try to figure this stuff out. Alberta's predicament with the oil and gas industry, in essence, provided some competitive advantage. Things were cheaper. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that remains one of the really big advantages of being in Calgary is that it's, you know, it's a big city, it has lots of resources, but it's also, it's cheaper than living in Vancouver or than living in San Francisco. And so we can, we can get a lot of life sciences talent for cheaper than we'd have to pay in those places. Right. Yet we're still, you know, we're pretty central and we're connected and we can easily just hop on a plane and fly to the Valley whenever we need to. Do you find that people from the Valley are kind of looking askance at Alberta because it's not down the block from them? I mean, it, they, they've got a, an unlimited number of prospects six blocks from where their office is. So going to Alberta is something that they would be less inclined to do, I think. It's harder to get investment if you're going to stay in Canada yeah. from from Silicon Valley, especially angels, because they want to invest in people that they can go down to their office and check in on them and see how they're doing. Um, having said that, we've gotten a fair bit of angel investment from the Valley. So I think you just you have to get lucky, but it, it can happen. But it's definitely that is one of the, the drawbacks is it's you know, you're farther away from that kind of stuff. And people do perceive that as being a challenge. Right. So where are you at with respect to your funding journey? You said you acquired a seed round or you're in the process yeah. of raising additional capital? Yeah, we're looking to raise a Series A now yeah. for early 2019. I see. And how is that going so far? Uh, it's going. It's going. Um, okay. It feels kind of like we just closed the seed. I mean, we closed the seed round in December, right. and it feels like we had like three months off of no fundraising. Right. And now it's started again, which is really kind of depressing. What resources do you need to get where you want to go? For instance, how could I help you? How, how can the people in this room help you? How can the people of Alberta help a company like this be successful? Because it's in all of our best interests for that to be the case, right, for you to guys to, to succeed. So how can we help? Well, we're always looking for money. Oh, <laughs> but but beyond that, you know, we're also looking for um, for us. We're always trying to to figure out more more connections in the water space and more applications that our technology could be used for. So, you know, we think a lot about you know the markets we're going after and. The, one of the great things about our technology is that we can detect so many different things in water. So there's so many different opportunities, which is both a, a benefit and also a curse because it means where do you actually start and what do you actually prioritize. But for us, we really just are always looking to connect with more people in the water space, people that know problems that may not we may not have thought about. And right. it's interesting when you figure out some of these market opportunities for our technology, they're not always the ones that we initially off the bat thought were the most promising, but we realized that there's some really compelling issues in terms of measuring things in water or in other liquids that right. that need to be solved. You had indicated that your best prospects right now, your best customers are actually all in the States. Yeah. Okay. Can you describe those just a little bit for us, the kinds of projects you're working on now? So we have a number of projects with projects with utilities in the mm -hmm. states. So essentially cities that have, right now it's arsenic, that have arsenic in their city's drinking water and they have systems to clean it up and they need ways to actually track that process. And right. today they use labs and it takes two weeks to get the data back. It's not great. Right. So we work with a number of utilities in the states that have that problem. 
We also work with, we have some work with the federal government here in Canada, right. looking at reclaimed mining sites and being able to track, right. uh, track the water contamination and check on that. And then we also work with some mining companies here in Canada. Arsenic is a byproduct of gold mining, right? Exactly. So, yeah. so any sort of gold mine would be a, pers- a prospective yeah, customer sure. as well. Is there a consumer market for this? I mean, we talked again a little bit about the idea that people are doing bi- you know, doing DNA testing at home. They're doing colorectal screening at home. Is there a water test that you eventually visualize will go home? that people will be able to buy it like on the shelf at their local Rona store? We think so. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's interesting because when we started it, we never thought that that was a possibility because coming from Calgary, we actually have really, really good water here. And so I had never really thought that anyone would actually care about that. But it wasn't until we moved to California. And there's a lot of problems with the water in California. And there's a lot of just distrust in general. Even if it's good, people... People buy bottled water. Nobody drinks the water at NASA because it's just assumed that it's full of, of stuff. Jet fuel. Yep. Yeah. Just right. no one drinks it. Exactly. It's not it's not a thing. And so we realize, wow, there's actually there's a lot more people that are concerned about their own consumer the water that comes out of their tap than we than we'd ever imagined. And so that's led us to start to think more about a consumer market. I think right now our price point is still a little bit too high for that kind of thing, but definitely in the future we see that as we start to you know, grow this out and make this even more more affordable, more accessible. I think that's definitely a direction we'd like to take. Well, and the, the political environment is one of where people are less trustful of institutions in general. So, I mean, that would tend to play into your strength, right? The Absolutely. ability to be independently confirm your, what your water consists of. You've done a lot of presentations, a lot of interviews. What's the one question that you've been asked, or ha- sorry, have never been asked, and, and wish that somebody had put up their hand and asked a particular question? What, what's that question? What's your answer to it? A question that I, I wish I'd been asked? A question that you wish you had been asked but never have up until now. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or is, is there a particular question that just seemed odd in the context of the conversation that you were having with the people in the audience? I get asked a lot about if our bacteria is going to mutate and take over the world. Oh, okay. It's a very real concern that people have, okay. uh, which I can, I can understand in some sense well, well let me be let me let me be your straw man in okay. that case so is can your bacteria mutate absolutely and take over not. the world no okay. so our bacteria yeah. is is a lab strain bacteria it's a bacteria that people have studied for years and years and years and it is absolutely non-toxic non-pathogenic we have a really hard time convincing it to grow and sometimes it just decides it it doesn't want to and it's kind of this we call it a princess sometimes that it i see you know it's it's hard to to provide the exact right conditions that make it happy so right. if it ever were to you know escape the confines of our lab it would die right and it there are obviously some challenges in getting that out into the field and keeping it alive absolutely that's right. been yeah that's been one of our big prongs of research and development has been to stabilize the bacteria over long periods of time and keep them keep them in a form that they're ready to detect the contaminants. And that's, we've developed a lot of IP around, right. around that side of things. Now, do you actually have a commercial product right now? I mean, that, that people can actually go and buy if they, if they had a, this kind of requirement? Kind of. Okay. So one of our challenges is because we're using this genetically modified organism, we have to actually get approval from Environment Canada to be able to sell this, mm-hmm. um, which we don't have right now. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we sell services essentially so we sell this as a pilot where we take the units out in the field we measure the water provide data to the utility about what it looks like so that's one way that we generate revenue right. and then we also generate revenue with companies that have a specific concern so they have compound x in their water there's no good way to detect it right. we can develop a way with our bacteria to detect it and so they contract us to do that for them i see and how have you found the government bureaucracies both in canada and the u.s in getting that approval because that seems to be on the critical path to commercialization is to getting those approvals. So how have you found them to deal with? 
it's extremely slow, frustrating, and confusing. Okay. So it's uh, like a lot of, I think, government processes like that that you have to go through. It's just a, a hoop you have to jump through, and it takes takes a lot of time, and it's frustrating, especially when, you know, from our side, we really feel like this 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 organism does not pose any risk. But, you know, I can understand from a due diligence perspective, you really need to to prove that and to be to be careful. And so I can understand the the need for this type of process and regulatory. Do you have this regulatory approval? But it is it's frustrating as an entrepreneur to go through it. And you have to learn as you go, like you have with everything else by the sounds of it. Yeah, and that that's a big challenge in it, that it's really hard to find people that actually have experience going through this process. It's, it's very few and far between. Right. Uh, Emily, I thought about the future. I mean, and again, I'm sure you've been asked this question a bunch of times as well, but sort of five, 10 years from now, what do you visualize for the future? So I think, uh, you know, for, for FredSense specifically, we're hoping to really be able to you know, expand out what we can do and really build a lot of different sensors that can play in a lot of different industries. And I think water testing is just such a huge opportunity that is only going to become more more pressing and more important as time goes on. And as we experience more droughts and more more issues with water and we start to get more concerned about pollution and contamination, I think that water testing is just going to be something really, really important. I think in general, I hope that we start to see more interesting applications of using something like b bacteria to solve problems like this. And I hope that we can see that starting to spread in other industries where this type of technology can become can become useful to solve some of these big challenges where traditional methods haven't worked. And, and eventually get that office with the glass walls where you're sipping coffee. That was your original vision for it, right? You know, I don't know. You know, having, <laughs> having been in these, you know, I, I miss our, you know, our old little 140 square foot lab and I miss our old car repair shop lab. And so right. I don't know if the fancy office is really what it's. There's one additional question that I ask every guest on the show, and that is, as your career and company continues to evolve, can you and I get together again and keep our listeners updated on your progress? Because I think it's just fascinating what you're doing. Absolutely. I would to. just absolutely love that. So I'm going to, unfortunately, we're at the end of our time slot, so I'm going to wrap up. I don't know about the audience, but I have just found today's discussion to be absolutely fascinating. I think this is a great made in Calgary, made in Alberta story, and I hope that all, everybody in this room goes forth and uh, tells the world about this because it is a very exciting technology and I think you've seen from what Emily has said, it's got some incredibly bright and talented people working for it. So let's help them out if we can. To get in touch with Emily, the website is fredsense.com, just the way it sounds. And for more on the Work Not Work podcast, the website is the.worknotwork.show or just Google either one of those and you'll get more relevant hints that you can possibly ever use. Thank you, Emily, and thank you, our live audience today and listeners at home. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. That brings to an end this episode of the Work Not Work Show. I would like to once again thank our very special guest, Emily Hicks, president and co-founder of FredSense. It was a true pleasure talking with her, and I really look forward to our next conversation. As I mentioned a moment ago, the Alberta Podcast Network is powered by ATB. I like to say that ATB is like a bank, but better. To give you a feel for that, let me tell you about a unique and frankly quite amazing program ATB runs called ATB Cares. During the upcoming holiday season, we often think of those in need of our financial support and make a donation to help out as best we can. Well, how would you like a way of increasing that donation by 15% at absolutely no cost to you? That's what ATB Cares does. 
donate to a charity or cause of your choice through atbcares.com and ATB will cover any and all fees and they will add 15% to your donation. That's right, 15%. There's a wide variety of causes from which to choose. In 2017, over $4 million was donated through ATB Cares. So check it out at atbcares.com. It is absolutely worth your while. website is worknotwork.show and we're on all of your favorite social media platforms. We really look forward to hearing from you. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continuing support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who, like Emily, have turned their passion into their profession.